Do not be ashamed then of testifying to our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel in the power of God, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not in virtue of our works, but in virtue of his own purpose and the grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus ages ago. From the second epistle of St. Paul to Timothy, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This morning I want to address the question of the Christian's duty to testify to the Lord Jesus Christ without shame. Anyone here struggle with shame in witness? Not nearly enough hands. Okay. That's partly the reason. Okay. Uh, Shame is a powerful motivator, or should I say demotivator. I asked you to be honest, and you didn't raise your hand. I have said recently that shame tells us merely how we ought to feel about something, as opposed to what responsibility we ought to take. Shame moves us to inaction, causes us to be immobilized with regard to our most basic duties. I have talked with many people through the years who bear such a weight of shame that they can't really do anything. I myself have borne that weight. Many of us, and I would venture to guess that most of us, were raised in a culture that placed such a high value on the emotional, what we might call emotive responses, that we find it very difficult to exercise responsibility at all. This has happened as our culture has gone from believing in moral facts to believing that the only thing that matters is our intuition, our intuitive approval or disapproval of this or that action. Well, let me give an example. A child does something or does not do something that meets with the parent's disapproval, and the parent, instead of correcting the child and calling the child to responsibility, is more interested in how the child feels about what he has done. So there's a lecture or a threat, and the parent is not satisfied until there is sufficient remorse. I preach to myself. I did this very thing yesterday to my own kids. And now I have to preach about it. The parent has taken the basic premise that a child who commits a fault must feel shame. And it is the parent's duty to instill that shame in the child in order to be a good parent. This has the effect of conditioning the fallen human response to sin in us, that of shame. Remember Adam and Eve, what do they do after they commit the fall after they commit that fallen terrible sin they hide in shame and what does God do he doesn't chase him around the garden with a rod what does he do he says where are you consequently because of all this we become a people who believe simply this that responsibility is a poor substitute for emotion. I've thought about this a little bit, and as I track these things on things like Facebook and worse, Twitter, I notice that people get rather enraged and worked up into a frenzy, and they're more compelled to act outraged than to do anything about it. We've become a people motivated by shame. And shame doesn't motivate us to action, it motivates us to inaction and irresponsibility. 
I love what the letter to the Hebrews says about Jesus and shame, that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Shame was telling Jesus, shame emanating from the demons of hell, don't take action. Don't do anything about sin and death. Don't do anything. Don't take up the cross. Don't bear this responsibility. The powers of darkness wanted them to be bound in fear, to be ashamed of you and of me, and quite simply, to do nothing. But what did he do? He despised the shame and endured the cross and put death to flight. He took upon himself responsibility for sin, took upon himself the curse of death. And that is the cause of the Christian's confidence, and that alone. And we can say, therefore, with confidence that shame is not for Christians. Shame is for sinners who are committed to their sinfulness. They're the ones who should feel that something is wrong with their inaction, with their apathy and sin. We should instead take confidence in the cross and teach our children to do the same. We've been led to believe that sins of commission, those things that we do, are the worst kind of sin. But let me tell you, much of the time, our greatest problem are sins of omission, those things that are left undone. Repentance, beloved, is not just about giving up the life of sin. It is about turning to the new life of righteousness, turning to a life of virtue wrought in us by the power of divine grace. And it is in this light that I want to look at this reading from 2 Timothy, not neglecting the reading from the Gospel of Luke. At the heart of both readings is an emphasis on duty. Duty is not a word we like to use that much these days because we think it's a bad word. It could be if you used it that way. Oh, come on, that was solid. <laughs> but I don't want you to get the wrong idea. The Christian life is a life of joyful obedience. It's lived out in thankfulness to God for the free gift of salvation. And this obedience is not caused by our own will but by the will of God. I've been driving around lately and have seen attached to stop signs, there's a stop sign, and then below it is another sign that says, stop sinning, obey Jesus. As if it were that simple. We cannot please God by our own power, but we must be enabled by the free gift of grace to live rightly. Those who understand Christianity to be entirely about duty, and not about the grace needed to live out that duty, miss the point. Yet we can understand and understand truly that to be a people of faith and to be a people of obedience is one and the same thing. And we see this in the gospel reading today. The disciples ask Jesus, what? Increase our faith. Make us more faithful. Make us believe in you more. Fill us with virtue, they could be saying. And the Lord's response is not only to say that if they had faith like a mustard seed, they could command sycamore trees to be planted in the sea, an amazing thing, 
But he, at the end of the story, encourages them to think about what they'll say at the end of their lives. Simply this, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. There's something about living with a duty in mind that is the very thing of faith. There's something about living in obedience that is the very thing of being a person of increased faith. A servant in the outworking of faith in the Lord will always act in obedience. If the servant trusts the master, he will do as he is commanded. Some of you may have served in the military. One of the things they try to cultivate is trust in the structure, trust in your commanding officer. If you don't trust the commanding officer, what will you do? You know, you probably do your duty and do it grudgingly. But that's not what's wanted. So we go to this reading from 2 Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy, as always, as to his beloved child. He prays for him. He prays for grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ to be upon him. Paul is writing from prison, and he's writing as a proud father, proud of the faith which is in his spiritual son, a faith which comes not only from Paul's witness, but from Timothy's mother and grandmother. Timothy is a product of generational faithfulness. And Paul writes to him not as a father who is ashamed of his son, but as a father who is approving, encouraging, and kind, who wants to build up this spiritual son. He even asks his son not to be ashamed of him. Don't be ashamed of me, as he sits there in a Roman prison. This is a dynamic that is so rare that it's quite sad, in fact. I heard a bishop last week lament the lack of spiritual fatherhood in the church today. He said as he was reading through Scripture, he saw this theme of spiritual fatherhood, a spiritual father with a spiritual son, this work of mentoring and encouragement going on and on and on, and he realized that he'd never had that. I think if I'm honest about it, I say, I don't think I've ever really had that in a deep and abiding way. So that struck a chord with me. Our young men are crying out for spiritual fatherhood, for men to encourage them and teach them and be proud of them. And I fear that our culture of fathers living to shame their children especially their sons, has led to a crisis of young men who are weak and irresponsible. As Cleus Lewis called them, men without chests. The world around us is worried about strong men and all the damage they might do without knowing what strong men even look like. And let me tell you this, if you're worried about the damage which strong men can do, you should see what weak men are capable of. Paul reminds Timothy of the power that is in him. He reminds Timothy of what I would submit to you is his ordination. When he is set apart by the laying on of Paul's hands to ordain him. It has traditionally been understood that Paul made Timothy a bishop, specifically of Ephesus, and at a young age. Paul reminds Timothy to rekindle this gift of God which is in him through the laying on of hands, to reignite the fire of the Holy Spirit which is in him. Now, 
That's a wonderful message, right? Rekindle the gift that is in you by the laying on of my hands. I mean, he's get, that's language meant to pump him up. But we should read between the lines here. We might guess something that perhaps Timothy has failed. Perhaps he has been timid. Perhaps he has let his elders run roughshod over him. Perhaps he has been a man who has put others to shame. Perhaps he has not exercised his office as he ought to. Perhaps he's been a disappointment. Through this correspondence with Timothy, we can see that Timothy at a young age has been put in charge of a church, to put it simply, full of sinners. It's like every church, really. It's full of immorality, blasphemy, heresy, infighting, people who don't pray well, the wrong people are getting ordained, which is always the case. And so Paul sends Timothy instructions for good church order, whom to ordain, how they should pray, so on and so forth. In the second epistle, Timothy is being exhorted to persevere in the faith, especially as he suffers. And Paul draws attention to his own suffering as a model for faithfulness to his duty in the midst of suffering. In chapter 2, Timothy is exhorted to present himself as one who is approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed. Timothy's confidence is flagging. The power that is in him has in some ways disappeared. And so we can infer from all this that Paul is concerned that Timothy take his responsibilities seriously once again. That he return to this great calling that God has given him. That he rekindle the gifts of God, the graces given to him for the performances, for the performance of his duties as a bishop. Maybe he's been timid, maybe he's been rash, maybe he has been humble to the point of being weak and ineffective. And so Paul writes, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. Paul calls upon Timothy to shun shame again. He says, do not be ashamed then of testifying to our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel in the power of God. Paul is calling upon Timothy to live a life that is so authentic, that so shuns shame that he will suffer for it. That he will suffer the reproach of those who think he ought to be doing less or that think he ought to be doing more. That will lead him to suffer for the gospel because he exercises the very power of God. You know, I noticed something. There are many out there who in an attempt to silence the witness of Christians attempt to shame us for what we believe. For the most closely held convictions of the Christian faith our convictions about Christ, about creation, about marriage, about human life, about all manner of things. Many times that outside criticism sounds like this, don't listen to those Christians, they're terrible people. Do you know what they believe? They're hypocrites, the whole lot of them. 
And there are many that listen. They don't want to suffer reproach. They don't want to suffer the ill opinion of their friends. And so they relent and say, whoa, don't lump me in with them. I'm not like that. I'm different. They want to be well thought of. They want to be loved even. They don't want to suffer shame in that way. But Paul, note, does not shame Timothy for his timidity. He doesn't shame him for his lack of courage, but rather reminds him of his holy calling, which is not given in virtue of his works or how good he is at doing this or that or another thing, but in virtue of God's own purposes in the grace given in Christ Jesus. And that is the very thing we need to be reminded of today. God did not call you because you're great. God did not call you because you're capable. And he did not call you because of all the good things you've done. He called you because he has a purpose. He has a job for you to do. And he's given you all the grace needed for it in his son Jesus. So Paul encourages his son in the faith with kind words, with gentle words. This is what a good bishop should do. A good bishop should remind the priests of the diocese of, their holy, of the holiness of their calling. He reminds them that they operate not by talent or human wisdom and skill, but by grace. A good bishop calls the clergy to prayer, And likewise, a good priest doesn't stand before the people in October and say, shame on you for not giving enough money. He doesn't say, you should all be ashamed of how little money you give. No, he doesn't do that at all. He should remind them of whom they belong to and whom it is they serve. He calls upon them to guard the faith and follow sound instruction, but he does not shame them. And in the same way, a good parent does not shame children for their behavior, and I've been horrible about this. No, good parents encourage their children to live by the grace of God, to accept suffering, and to persevere through difficulty to take their responsibilities seriously. Well, let me wrap this up by saying something about the purposes of God. I'd mentioned Adam and Eve earlier, and it is all too easy to fall into the patterns which they set out for us in the garden to slink off in shame and dejection. And yet we see God's purposes not in harsh judgments, but in the great call which he constantly gives us to present ourselves before him to receive grace and mercy to say at the end of our life, we only did what was our duty. And so we're given that power to obediently follow him in faith and to without shame or fear testify to this grace and mercy, to give witness to the faith that is in us. If you want to know how to overcome your shame or your fear and share the faith that is in you with others, with your neighbors, with your friends, with your fellow students, the surefire way is not to be ashamed about it. The surefire way is to know the holy calling he has given, 
the purposes he has towards humanity to save and not to put to shame, to redeem and not to forsake. We just celebrated the feast of St. Francis of Assisi on Friday, and St. Francis is one whom we can take as a model for how to live in this way. He lived till the end of his life a very humble life, a life that he had chosen, but it was a life of authenticity and a life in which he was not ashamed to testify to the gospel. Well, there's a story about Francis who, uh, after this time in which he was praying in the church of San Damiano and this uh, crucifix comes to life and says to him, Francis, help me rebuild my church. Uh, He thought, I'm going to need some money to do that. (laughs) How can I get the money to rebuild this church? Of course, the Lord's plans were bigger than that. He went to his father's shop. His father was away in France on business. His father was a a textile merchant, and he sold his father's goods at a severe discount. I like to think it was something like 80% off. We're selling, everything must go. Even had those guys out there with those signs. And I've been to the spot where this is said to have happened. Well, the father returned from his business and found his store completely cleaned out, no inventory left. And of course, he was angry. Well, and that's an understatement. He beat the tar out of his son. And then he took his son before the bishop and accused him of all of this sin against him. And before the bishop revoked the clause in his will, giving all of his possessions to his son at his death. He wanted his son to be ashamed of his actions. He wanted him to bear this. And Francis, in response, started taking off his clothes, one piece at a time, until he was completely naked. Bonaventure tells us that he even removed his breeches. And he handed each piece to his father as he stripped down. In images like the one on the screen here, this morning, you can see Francis being wrapped in the bishop's cope to cover his shame. It's an act of kindness. And from then on, Francis was wrapped in garments given to him by the church, a simple brown habit. It's been said that this was the day of Francis's wedding with his beloved spouse, Lady Poverty, with whom he would live the rest of his life dependent fully on the grace of Jesus and that alone. Francis was, to put it simply, an inspiring witness in his day. No one could deny the effect of his life. No one could deny the grace of Jesus working in him And it was because he forsook all for the cause of obedience, for the cause of the duties which the Lord had given him. And he lived by the grace of Jesus and that alone. May the same be true of us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.